Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. So, Will, it's my understanding that you have some, I'm not sure if I would call it sad, but at the very least, bittersweet news for the Fever Dreams gang. Well, whether it's sad or not, it sort of depends on what your tastes are in Fever Dreams hosts. But yeah, I'm going on another leave. I'll be out for into the spring a little bit, working on a couple more projects. So I just wanted to broach this on the pod because in the past, I've handed this off to you as a duty to explain. And there was like a lot of speculation. Oh, did Will, was he ousted? Was he fired from the Daily Beast? Is he under a cloud of suspicion? Has he been soft canceled? That kind of stuff. So the answer is no, it's nothing to worry about. I, I wouldn't put on your sleuthing, just working on a couple things. I will return to the pod soon. So around when should we be expecting you back so uh, Kelly Weil doesn't sharpen too many knives while you're out? Yes, mid-March. And it's good of you to bring up Kelly Weil. She will be among the great co-hosts filling in for me. So I'll certainly be a listener and I think it'll be great. So yeah, that's sort of what I'm up to. All right. So on to the news. So Swin, it's been a tough month for One America News, the sort of upstart Fox News cable news rival. America's network. Yeah. America's network. What is going on there? Well, as our listeners probably know, OAN has had to deal with a lot of legal miasma in recent months and over the past year. We can get into that background a little bit more in a second. But it just dropped over the long MLK Day weekend that DirecTV is summarily dropping or summarily executing, as some people have speculated, One America News. Now, the reason I speak so morbidly about it is because DirecTV is, well, correct me if I'm wrong, it is the lion's share of where One America News gets its revenue and its views. Is that correct? Yeah, so One American News has always been kind of an interesting operation because it's not entirely, it wasn't clear for a while where they got their money and sort of how they had launched in the first place because it's it's so difficult to launch a new cable network because you have to get these carriage rights and just need to get on with all these providers. So in this case, but last year, Reuters had some great reporting that revealed basically that AT&T, which owned DirecTV, had, according to the founder of One America News, had sort of approached him and said, hey, maybe what if we had another conservative cable network besides Fox News? I think presumably because they would like some more competition, maybe to get Fox News to lower its fees. And so that was number one, that AT&T played this kind of like secretive role, but also that they had a huge amount of money coming from DirecTV. There were these various lawsuits that Reuters got access to that revealed that DirecTV was basically like the funder of One American News by carrying it. There was an accountant who said, without this DirecTV deal, One American News would basically be worthless because that is its only source of revenue. Some of these statistics said that 90% of One America's money came from DirecTV. So like, this is really like the thing for them. And now it's being pulled. Right. The strong implication, if not just flat out statement from that reporting from months ago, was that if you turn off the DirecTV spigot, essentially OAN, the vociferously pro-Trump network, goes away. Or at the very least, it stands a gaping, vast risk of practically evaporating overnight. It's hard to overstate how much this deal just kept them afloat. It wasn't the support of like whatever MAGA luminary or uh, far right dipshit on the internet who was going around telling their followers saying, abandon Fox News for something like OAN. It wasn't the then president of the United States, Donald Trump, who kept saying for years, all my fans, all my followers, you should watch One American News Network instead because they're not squishy like those cuckolds at Fox News. It wasn't any of that. 
that wasn't the source of their power. It was this one deal, basically, is my understanding. Yeah, exactly. I think sometimes we can get a little caught up in like the drama of like, well, this person tweeted, listen to One America News, I'm boycotting Fox and stuff. But when you talk about like something at the scale of a cable news network, it is like all these kind of corporate deals going down that are really where the money comes from. So in this case, I think One America News is in a kind of a crummy spot here because they are dealing with the fact that when this deal was struck, they were not as, I think, toxic and, and radioactive as they are now. I mean, this was when they started, they did not have Pizzagate guy Jack Posobiec on board or they were not into promoting anti-vaccine stuff. They have a guy. They weren't all in on like democracy should die so the former host of Celebrity Apprentice can remain president. On executing people. You may remember a couple months ago, there was a clip where <laughs> that was really popular in QAnon world, which is how I got into it. But where like one of their reporters was like talking about, oh, you know, the election was stolen. And then he was like, so what is the penalty for treason? That's right. Death. Potentially millions of people could be put to death. <laughs> and I was like, what? Which raises even more questions about exactly how many people were involved in these efforts to undermine the election. Hundreds? Thousands? Tens of thousands? How many people does it take to carry out a coup against the presidency? And when all the dust settles from the audit in Arizona and the potential audits in Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Wisconsin, what happens to all these people who are responsible for overthrowing the election? What are the consequences for traitors who meddled with our sacred democratic process and tried to steal power by taking away the voices of the American people? What happens to them? Well, in the past, America had a very good solution for dealing with such traitors. Execution. So if you're DirecTV, it seems like maybe this is not the business you want to be in. As a result, they pulled their money. And But I think the, the, the sort of the second step of this is that Trump people, Trump himself and people around him have realized that this means One American News is on life support. And so now what happens? So there's talk about let's boycott DirecTV. At the rally over the weekend, at the Trump rally over the weekend, he said, well, I'm not going to specifically say boycott, but like, hmm. Well, yeah, good luck boycotting AT&T, this sort of massive communications conglomerate. A big subplot of the Trump years was the then leader of the free world and so many of his prominent followers would call for boycotts almost as often as they would draw an ordinary breath. I lost count of how many things Trump and his prominent minions kept telling the MAGA fans and their voters to just keep boycotting. It was all the time. And correct me if I'm misremembering something, but I don't remember it actually working any of those times. It was just a thing to feed the culture war flames. And I don't remember this making a serious impact or a publicly discernible one on any of these corporations or companies' bottom lines. I don't really think it has. My dream boycott was, of course, when they boycotted Keurig for pulling its ad from Sean Hannity. Oh, that was so cool. And then these dudes were smashing up their Keurigs. The hot new one actually is Carhartt because Carhartt's going to mandate vaccination. So you have all these YouTubers who, who do a little blue-collar stolen valor and are like, I'm never going to wear Carhartt again. We like to talk a lot about like the cult of Trump and how strong it is. But to be fair, the Bush Republicans at the height of like post 9-11 panic did force the Dixie Chicks to go away. They did conclusively cancel the Dixie Chicks. Basically, just to bring it back to One America News, this is really, really bad news for them. It can be kind of a droll thing about like, oh, you're not going to carry this channel. It should be interesting. And from, I think, the Herring family who own One America News, I think you have two options, one of which is kind of call it quits. Or maybe three options. Sell One America News to the bigger fool, perhaps Gao Wingi, the fugitive Chinese billionaire who's building a social media network uh, with the likes of Steve Bannon, Jason Miller, kind of a media empire. Or maybe you moderate. Maybe you uh, you can some of your kookier people. Not great news if you really uh, stand One America News. Well, moving on, something else we want to get into near the top of this episode is something I'm sure our listeners have heard more and more about. But as per usual with a lot of the things we dissect on this show, you may have no idea what the fuck people are talking about when they get into this, whether it's someone like Donald Trump or a right-wing member of your family who has been poisoned by whatever they're watching on Tucker Carlson. We are, of course, talking about the Ray Epps 
saga. Will, can you talk a little bit more about how the January 6th committee has kind of examined this and tried to set the record straight, I guess? Sure. So Ray Epps is one of these guys who he was a January 6th protester. And there's a reason I'm saying protester, not rioter. But basically, Ray Epps is this guy who is kind of like, he means everything if you're deep into the right wing media. But if you're not, that name means nothing to you, perhaps. So basically, Ray Epps is this guy who is the linchpin of the conspiracy theory that the FBI did January 6th or that shadowy deep state forces carried it out. So this is a guy kind of like a boomer guy, pretty hulking guy. On January 5th, he was hanging out with kind of the pre-January 6th crowd at night in D.C. And he started saying, tomorrow we're going into the Capitol and all this. And people started accusing him then of being sort of a federal agitator. And then on January 6th, he's around really outside the Capitol, riling people up and saying, we're all marching to the Capitol. Come on, march, march, march. And so then after January 6th, the FBI puts him on a list of like, do you know this man? You know, one of these lists of guys they were interested in. Did they tweet his face? Right, his face. And ultimately, he's removed from that and then never charged with anything. That the kind of the removal from the person of interest list and the fact that he was never charged with anything made him a really interesting character for conspiracy theorists on the right, with the implication being that this was like a FBI provocateur who the other part of the FBI was hunting and then realized like, oh, that's our guy, took him off the list. And so Darren Beatty, who's a disgraced Trump White House staffer who's removed from that job for speaking at a white nationalist conference, he's kind of reinvented himself as the leading January 6th conspiracy theorist. Tucker Carlson has had him on constantly. And so he really keys in on Ray Epps. I mean, it's like Ray Epps is the proof that this was a false flag operation because this guy hasn't been charged. It gets to the point where people are going out to Ray Epps ranch in Arizona saying, hey, Fed, all this kind of stuff. But the Ray Epps thing, we have people like Ted Cruz are tweeting about Ray Epps. So it really reaches like a really high level of the Republican Party. But as with so many January 6th conspiracy theories, this has now fallen apart. And this has been a huge, huge thing on various avenues of conservative media, including, of course, places like Fox News. And if you are getting into that milieu and just injecting that stuff into eyeballs. Ray Epps is, he's basically like a folk anti-hero to you at this point. Well, not anti-hero. I guess it would be a folk villain at this point. Like, there's no escaping this guy if you're following conservative media. And it's not at the fringes at all. It's completely embedded itself in the mainstream. And they really do think that this one guy is the silver bullet in proving that the January 6th riot, which, of course, conservative media spent a good time pretending was either good or no big deal, was actually engineered by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Yeah, I mean, Ray Epps is sort of the devil on every January 6th rioter's shoulder whispering like, invade the Capitol. Right. It's not that they were listening to people like Donald Trump, who literally said, like, go to the Capitol the day of. It was all this one supposed Fed. Right. So this is getting brought up by Republican congressmen. They're saying in these hearings, they're demanding the FBI say, play uh, who is or is not an informant. And so then Adam Kinzinger, who's a Republican on the January 6th committee, he comes out last week and says, look, you guys are obsessed with Ray Epps. Here's the deal. We asked Ray, you a federal informant. Now, admittedly, this is kind of the level of evidence of like, if you're a cop, you have to tell me. But I think it's the best we're going to get right now. We asked him. He says he's not an informant. The FBI says he's not. So really absent any other evidence, that line of thinking is disproven. And the other thing I, I would say is that this is kind of running parallel to the fact that Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers militia, had also not been charged for a while. I should also say Ray Epps has not been charged because he did not enter the Capitol, as far as anyone can tell. And so if you're charging everyone who is talking rowdy, there's gonna be a lot more people charged. So this is running parallel to the fact that Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, was not charged for a long time, although he himself did not enter the Capitol either. But then last week's Rhodes is charged with sedition as well as some other charges. So some pretty serious stuff. So the reaction here, it was Epson Rhodes haven't been charged. This is proof these guys are informants. January 6th was a false flag. Well, one of them suddenly gets charged, the other doesn't, and his thing gets kind of disproven. Well, for folks on the right, this is only proof that the heat is on the FBI. they got to scramble the evidence, and they've got to charge Rhodes. Basically, for them, this is only further proven this is all a false flag. Right. I mean, that was the only avenue that they were going to take on this. Anything that would come out would only deepen their suspicions. But let's, for the sake of argument, take part of their position, say, okay, what if Ray Epps were a federal informant? Obviously, when you're talking about people like Ted Cruz or prominent Fox hosts, context collapse or the evisceration 
of any context is vital to your political strategy and messaging. That just comes with the territory. That goes without saying. There is obviously never any clarification to any of the people who follow these sorts of conspiracy theories, obviously because it wouldn't matter even if there were, that if Ray Epps had been a federal informant, that is not the same thing as him being an FBI agent. Even if he had been an informant of sorts, that is not the same thing as, oh, oh, the FBI did a false flag mission to try to make Donald Trump look bad. That's not how federal informants work. This where this, oh, okay, there was one informant in the crowd, thus we are all absolved of rioting. The other thing I would say is that there are some funny exchanges people have had with both Rhodes and Ray Epps. The one about, because like Rhodes has been appearing everywhere and everyone still thinks he's a Fed, right? And so Fed spotting on the right is one of my great passions in terms of people accusing one another of this. And there was a funny video, I think it's CPAC, the most recent one, but possibly at another conference, where there's also kind of like a divide here between a lot of the groiper, the young, possibly white nationalist in many cases, kids are accusing a lot of these boomers of being feds. So Stuart Rhodes, older guy, groiper comes up to him at CPAC and says like, hey, can I pose for a video with you? And he says, yeah. And then the groiper says, we love our federal informants. And then Stuart Rhodes is like, ah, I'll get, get you, kid. <laughs> The Ray Epps interaction, the reason we have video on January 5th, the night before of him saying like, well, we got to do this is because he ran into Baked Alaska, who we know is sort of a white nationalist man about town. He's all around the country sort of at these these far right events. And so he is talking to Ray Epps and they're baked Alaska. Oh, I just got to stand up for my race, all this stuff. And then Ray Epps is like, yeah, and tomorrow we're going into the Capitol. We're going into the Capitol. And then baked Alaska, it starts accusing him of being a Fed and saying, oh, he starts to chant that Ray Epps is a Fed. Now, you might think... Baked Alaska, he thinks this guy's a big provocateur. He must think, well, I better not go into the Capitol tomorrow, right? Not so, right? Because now Baked Alaska is himself facing charges for entering the Capitol. So this kind of like retroactive idea that the riot was all this Ray Epps, his conception is really being sort of backdated there. Right. If all of these different guys, not just Ray Epps, but all the other people you want to try to fed spot in the crowd were so obviously feds on the day of the riot, then why did you all fucking fall for it? Right, exactly. It does put me in this strange position of being like, leave Ray Epps alone. They're not a nice guy. I mean, telling people that, urging them to attack the Capitol. Because it's been on my mind is like, what's up with this Ray Epps guy? Why hasn't he been charged? It definitely was interesting seeing that one wrapped up. Well, even if it kind of is wrapping up, my strong suspicion is that whether we want to or not, we're going to be hearing about it from now, maybe until the day we die. Anyway, moving on. Will, I got to start by asking you, the MLK Day weekend just wrapped. How did you and your family spend your long weekend? Yeah, I mean, I spent it hanging out. I was watching some of uh, Righteous Gemstones. That's basically what I ended up doing, along with spending time with my wife and taking care of my beautiful three-month-old child. I did catch up on the newly premiered second season of it, and of course, there is only one truly great show on HBO about succession and a corrupt family empire, and it's, of course, the Righteous Gemstones. So how do you think our former president, Donald Trump, spent his MLK Day weekend? Well, you know, I think like the Righteous Gemstones, he's getting into a little Southern fried succession (laughs) intrigue himself, fighting off rivals and potential heirs. What is going on with Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump? You are absolutely right. That is a good guess. Based on the conversations I had with a couple of people for a story that we just ran at the Daily Beast, Trump had one particular burning question on his mind over this recently wrapped long weekend. And that was, and I quote, is he being a wise guy? (laughs) Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And the quote unquote wise guy there, or the supposed wise guy who Trump was stewing about over the MLK Day weekend was none other than Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, obviously, if some of our listeners haven't been getting into this bubbling or brewing feud. They might be thinking Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former President Donald Trump, those guys are peas in a pot. They are allied warriors in the MAGA fight. They both enthusiastically endorsed each other in the past, and they should be thick as thieves, right? Well, DeSantis stands out right now among the potential or prospective 2024 Republican hopefuls, who is not named Donald Trump, who has not yet emphatically come out and publicly stated, if Donald Trump officially declares and runs for the nomination in 2024, I will step aside and support him wholeheartedly. Conspicuously, DeSantis has not committed to that, and that obviously has not gone unnoticed in the upper ranks 
of Trumpland. And it was just last week that DeSantis was in front of a crowd talking to the hosts of the conservative Ruthless podcast. And he was asked what his biggest regret was in his time in office in Florida. And he quickly responded that his biggest regret was that at the dawn of the coronavirus pandemic, circa March 2020, that he didn't speak out more forcefully and he didn't speak out louder or take action in a bigger way against the lockdown restrictions that at the time Donald Trump himself was pushing. So he was basically, without specifically naming Trump, he was slagging an element of Trump's record and the Trump administration record at the very beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Obviously, it did not take Donald Trump long to realize that his base and his voters were not fans of these restrictions. So it took no time at all for after however many weeks for for Trump to turn on basically what he had sort of been advocating just a few weeks earlier at the beginning of 2020. But this is something that DeSantis has clearly publicly signaled without going straight at Trump. He's clearly verbalizing that, okay, I think I have some room to Donald Trump's right on COVID-19 restrictions and lockdown politics. That is some place where I can occupy in the MAGA sphere that is more in line with the Republican base voter than even Donald Trump is. It's interesting, right? I mean, so we're seeing right now, first of all, can I just say like the power of conservative podcasting that Ron DeSantis is like, all right, my big break with Donald Trump, I'm going on the podcast hosted by Twitter personality Comfortably Smug. Hell yeah. <laughs> we're going to break this down. But it's interesting, right? Because both of them are kind of slicing up their turf ahead of the primary on vaccines and lockdown. So on one hand, you have Trump who's getting to be kind of like an insult comic at his rallies about boosters. Like when he's like, you got to get the booster. And when people go, boo, boo, he goes, oh, you, you should get it, you know, <laughs> whatever. He's arguing with people. Meanwhile, you have Ron DeSantis, who's very vague about his vaccine layout. I mean, he's like, he's like, I got these shots. He's going with the Tucker Carlson playbook of just like not saying whether or not he got it when it comes to the booster. I think he says he got the initial vaccination. Yes. He doesn't yes, say whether so. he's been boosted. And so he says, I got the shot. Oh, the thing people talk about that. So the DeSantis comments to the Ruthless podcast host came just a few days after Trump was being interviewed on OAN, the bedeviled network that we were talking about earlier. And he was talking about boosters. And listeners may not remember this, but just a few short months ago, Trump was actually shit talking boosters. I think he said something to the effect of like, oh, it sounds like a moneymaker for Pfizer to me. I don't know about this. But now he's come around. And he's pointedly endorsing boosters when he's asked about it in conservative media and every once in a while when he's at a public forum. So he's talking about it on OAN. And without naming Ron DeSantis, he says that there are, quote unquote, gutless Republican politicians out there who will not say publicly whether or not they've gotten the booster, unlike Donald Trump, who is now going around proudly saying that he got his booster shots for the COVID-19 virus, and that you got to say it. You got to say it. Why aren't these gutless politicians just coming out and say they got their boosters? Now, he said politicians plural, and he didn't name anybody. But there is literally nobody else who fits that description right now who Trump could be talking about except Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis. Look, this emerging turf war, which right now both camps, like the DeSantis office and the Trump team, they've been trying for a while to keep this stuff from spilling out into public view and bubbling up in the press. Because quite frankly, in a midterm election year, it doesn't really hate Republicans. And even Trump himself kind of instinctively is aware that he shouldn't go very, very, very hard at DeSantis and name him specifically just yet. But this is something that's been brewing for a while. And if you've been floating in and out of Donald Trump's inner sanctum or in and out of his social or political cliques, it doesn't really come as that much of a surprise because for weeks, Trump has been generously busy about gossiping about DeSantis. He's asking various confidants and advisors about, quote unquote, weaknesses and political vulnerabilities about DeSantis, probably trying to fish around about things that he could use in the future if DeSantis decides to not stand down. He has been telling several people over the past couple of months that whether it's DeSantis or anybody else who tried to cross him in a potential 2024 Republican conflict, he would absolutely crush or quote unquote destroy them. He's very fond of using the word destroy when he's talking about DeSantis. And there was one person I was speaking to who had spoken to Trump fairly recently about this. And this source recounted that Trump sounded 
very confused about why DeSantis isn't just coming out and straight up saying, I will step aside if Trump wants to reclaim his White House crown. And he made a point of saying something to the effect of he being former President Trump. Doesn't DeSantis remember what happened to Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio in 2016? Which I think gets to the heart of it, because there are a good number of political operatives right now and Republican figures who would wholeheartedly support someone like Donald Trump running against Joe Biden in the next presidential election. But if they could have the way of their deepest desires, they would rather have a nominee like Ron DeSantis. And I have a feeling that a lot of these people who are sort of itching for this sort of intra-party turf battle don't remember what happened just a few short years ago. And that was before Trump had the staggeringly high approval rating and popularity in the Republican Party that he has now. And it was before he was fucking president and had all of the recognition and the record that came with being their beloved MAGA president. This isn't 2015 anymore. It is interesting because I think DeSantis like reasonably has a little swagger right now. As you mentioned, I think some Republican activists, probably not a really hugely significant majority, are getting fed up with Trump, uh, particularly on vaccines. I think there is a lot of, as DeSantis has voiced this feeling, that the whatever kind of COVID regime the U.S. had under Trump should never have happened, which of course is easy enough to say two years later under Omicron and now that we have vaccines. I do think DeSantis had a little energy behind him. I think other potential people who had that energy have imploded, like Christy Nome in South Dakota, whose best shot I think now is getting vice president for Trump. So I think DeSantis is at least holding out to cut himself a deal, but it is interesting. I'm sure Trump is deep in the lab cooking up a nickname. Right. And at the end of the day, this is all about Trump's ego and him wanting this big, beautiful 2024 MAGA coronation if he does indeed pull the trigger and officially declare that he's running again for president of the United States. Ostensibly, the two of them are kind of tiffing over disagreements over COVID-19 policy and vaccine messaging. But at the end of the day, the terrain of ideological or political difference between the two of them over the COVID pandemic is vanishingly small. The thing that they have in common is way more significant than this little like sniping at each other without naming each other that's going on right now. Is that they are two Republican stars who, looking at the landscape two years into this pandemic, managed to get a hell of a lot of people killed unnecessarily on their watch from this deadly virus, and they couldn't be prouder of their records. That is the thing that unites the two of them, and that's one of the reasons that their followers will never in a thousand years abandon them. All right, then, now that I've gotten that off my chest, Will, who is our interview guest for this week? Right, so this week we've got Jonathan M. Katz. He's a journalist and the author, most recently, of Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. Highly recommend reading and buying. It is a solid read. Very interesting new book. It's out this week. It's about this guy named Smedley Butler, who is sort of a hatchet man of American empire and in the end, almost participant in an alleged coup to overthrow FDR. And so obviously, when you talk about would-be authoritarian putches in the United States, it's very relevant to us right now. So it's fascinating read. In addition to being the author of his new book, Gangsters of Capitalism, Jonathan also has a newsletter and podcast on Substack called The Racket, which are available at theracket.news. So I'm interested to hear what he has to say about both the olden days of American empire and how it relates to our present. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you. 
All right. This week on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Jonathan M. Katz. He's a journalist and the author of the new book, Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. I wanted to have Jonathan on the podcast this week. I think this book really touches on a lot of things. It both kind of uncovered some hidden or or mostly forgotten history of the American empire. And it also touches on the connections between right-wing movements and authoritarianism and big business, as well as storming the Capitol, which is obviously something on all of our minds and, you know, attempted coups. Jonathan, welcome on the podcast. Hey, great to be here. So first of all, your book here, it's a biography of Smedley Butler, who is this famous Marine and uses him as a prism to look at American imperialism and then ultimately this business plot, uh, the so-called coup attempt against FDR. Give us sort of the short version of who Smedley Butler was and what attracted you to this story. Yeah, there are very different ways to tell Smedley Butler's story, and I tried to do many of them because really Smedley Butler's story is, is the story of America. There are a lot of different ways to talk about ourselves. So Butler was a Marine. He joined the Marine Corps at the tender age of 16. He lied about his age to join during what's generally known as the Spanish-American War to fight in Cuba. And from there, he basically participated in every U.S. invasion, occupation, overseas war from then until basically the eve of World War II. He was very famous in his own day. He was the recipient twice of the Medal of Honor. But then at the end of his life, he became a critic of war and imperialism. And as you noted in the open, among other notable things that happened in the 30s, blew the whistle on a fascist plot to overthrow Franklin Delano Roosevelt and basically stop the New Deal. This is a guy, I mean, first of all, his name's Smedley, which is something you've touched on. It's sort of a goofy name these days. And yet, at the time, back in the day, I mean, this guy was like a sort of a celebrity soldier. And also, sort of as you described, it's sort of almost like a fixer for American capitalism and empire. I mean, he sort of reinstitutes a form of slavery in Haiti, all this kind of stuff. I mean, what attracted you to this story? So I came to him through Haiti. Most people, it's, it's a very small number of people in the world who've heard of Smedley Butler, hopefully more will now, but the people who remember him, they tend to either be Marines who learn about him in boot camp or generally leftists, some libertarians who hear about him because of his writings about war. He wrote a famous book called War is a Racket. Sometimes they come to him through the business plot. I came to him through Haiti. I lived in Haiti for three and a half years. I was the Associated Press correspondent there during the earthquake in 2010. And it was when I was actually going back to understand where Haiti's problems came from, like what, how things had gotten to be so bad that a 7.0 magnitude earthquake became the deadliest earthquake ever recorded in the Western Hemisphere and killed a number of my friends and almost killed me, I went back and was looking at the U.S. occupation of Haiti, which is something that most Americans have no idea ever happened, but Haitians remember very well. It was 19 years. It was a record that was only broken recently by the U.S. in Afghanistan in terms of our longest continuous military occupation. And Smedley Butler's name kept coming up because he played a huge role in that occupation. And then I realized that he played a huge role in most of these forgotten occupations and invasions of the period. And then I learned about his anti-war activism at the end of his life. And I was just like, I got to figure this out. (laughs) What happened? Who is this guy? And what does this all mean? So Jonathan, for the uninitiated listeners on this podcast, can you get into what exactly the business plot or the alleged business plot was? And what role did Smedley Butler claimed to happen. Yeah. So essentially, Franklin Roosevelt is elected president in the pit of the Great Depression in 1932. He takes office in 1933. And starting in 1933, these representatives of a prominent Wall Street banking house. Basically, it was a it was a stock brokerage. Or actually, a, it was a bond salesman was the one who was approaching Butler. Start coming to him with what ends up being a proposal for Butler to lead an army of about half a million veterans, so most of these would have been World War I veterans, into Washington, armed with the purpose of intimidating Franklin Roosevelt into either resigning or handing off all of his powers to a cabinet secretary, like this sort of super secretary of general affairs or something like that, who the plotters would name. And the reason behind that was that the bankers 
who were behind it. And we can dig more into like who we can fairly well say we know were behind it and the levels of speculation that kind of radiate out from there. But essentially, rich people in 1933 and 1934 were afraid that FDR's reforms, that the New Deal and his promised redistribution of wealth from the rich and his regulations on capital in favor of the working poor the labor class, the support for labor unions, all of those things. They were worried that that was going to be bad for them. And in the early 1930s, liberal democracy, kind of like now, was sort of seen by a lot of people as being on the way out. It seemed like it had been very badly discredited by the First World War and then by the Great Depression. And so a lot of these guys were thinking, like, the only options here are either we go full communist or we go fascist. and For them, for the rich, there was no choice. They were going to go fascist. That's essentially what it was. And the reason why we know about it at all, or the reason why we have the information that we have, is because Butler contacted Congress and volunteered to tell them everything that he knew and testified under oath in November 1934 in front of what is basically the precursor to the House Un-American Activities Committee. I think there are so many interesting parallels between this and January 6th, what perhaps could have been, you think about this supposed plot involved storming Washington with all these veterans. And then just recently, we have all these indictments of Oath Keepers who were veterans in their involvement in January 6th, members of this militia. You had an excerpt in Rolling Stone that ran earlier this month that makes a lot of these points that people should check out. And even going back to this kind of agent of the business class who supposedly recruited Smedley Butler, he's touring Europe, he's visiting all these fascist countries and kind of want to be fascist groups. There's this great example of France where these veterans had stormed the French government and essentially forced this center-left leader to resign. And then basically he says, like, this is what we want to do in D.C. So it's so interesting that nearly 100 years later, we're seeing so many similar echoes of that. Yeah, 100%. So the thing that you're referring to is in many ways an even closer analog to what happened on January 6th than the business plot would have been. Although obviously the connection between the two sort of puts them all in, in a group together. It's actually still known in France as February 6th, the Cis Février. And basically on February 6th, 1934, a group of sort of a a motley assortment of far-right and fascist groups and one single like group of (laughs) communists, because they didn't want to miss out on it, they all sort of got together and started this riot where they attacked, and they actually did attack the parliament, the seat of the French legislature. And the ties between that and what happened on January 6th are, you know, legion, no pun intended. I mean, it was, again, it depended on the participation of large numbers of veterans. And then on January 6th, it was the same thing. It's not just the Oath Keepers. I mean, there were active duty officers. There was an active duty Marine officer who held open the doors of the East Rotunda on January 6th, according to federal prosecutors, although we have that on video. So it seems pretty rock solid. But also they were animated by a conspiracy theory. It was actually, it's a conspiracy theory involving a guy named Alexandre Stavitsky. So he was accused of He was involved in corruption, and it was this corruption scandal that involved a number of people in the French establishment and in the government, and he, tell me if this sounds familiar, he had committed suicide, except people didn't really believe that he had actually committed suicide. (laughs) They thought that he hadn't killed himself. He was Arkansided. The Clinton death count strikes again. Exactly. Yeah, people were making jokes at the time about, there was like a ballistics report that like indicated that the bullet may have come from farther away than like not right next to his hand. So then like people were like joking about like the long arm of Savitsky at the time. I mean, it was like Epstein didn't kill himself like 1934. And people were convinced, these far-right groups were convinced he was Jewish. And these far-right groups were convinced that this represented this huge like Jewish cabal that was like controlling the French government and needed to be overthrown. The other thing was that this riot in 1934 resulted basically the only people who died were rioters. They clashed with the police and a number of them were killed, but they did succeed in roiling French politics and forcing the resignation of a center-left prime minister. And that was what Gerald C. Maguire, the bond salesman who approached Smedley Butler, he met with one of those groups, the Croix de Feu, the Fiery Cross, which was one of the veterans groups that was involved in that. He came to Paris like six weeks after this riot took place. And he came to Butler and said, this is exactly the organization that we're going to have. It, It was what he wanted to do. And a lot 
lot of ways is exactly what happened on January 6, 2021. Jonathan, uh, one thing I want you to help us clear up about the business plot is that when I was in college and I started to learn about this for the first time, I remember some college chums of mine and I think even a professor who I was talking to about this, uh, they kind of shrugged it off and said some things to the effect of, don't get too deep into the weeds of this because there's a lot of historical gray area about the claims Smedley Butler was making and how much of it was true, how much of it was possible concoction. Uh, furthermore, our listeners can just Google for this to see how savage the mainstream American press was at the time towards Smedley Butler and his claims, uh, denouncing him essentially as a bullshit artist. Uh, can you tell us, based on your extensive research on this matter, uh, what can be put in the bucket of straight-up vindicated and credibly corroborated history? What can be put in the category of perhaps exaggerated? And what gets placed in the grayer area of historical unknowable about how much of this scheme was actually being plotted behind the scenes. So, I mean, the first thing I would say is almost everything that we know about it is from Butler's testimony. Butler, he got a newspaper reporter to do sort of his own investigation. He was a reporter for the Philadelphia Record and the New York Post, which were at that time both newspapers and owned by the same person. And that was somebody that Butler knew because Butler had spent a couple of years in the 1920s running the Philadelphia Police Department and militarizing the police, which is another thing that's in gangsters. But anyway, that's a side story. And we have Butler's testimony. We have that reporter's investigation. And then when Butler testified, the committee called a very small number of other people, including Gerald C. McGuire, who's the front man for this. He's the guy who was basically the guy who approached Butler. And what we know is that McGuire, sort of despite himself, ended up confirming almost all of Butler's testimony. He perjured himself. He tried to like weirdly blame Butler. He was like, Butler was the one who thought of this coup idea and tried to get me involved, which didn't make any sense. But based on that, I think we can fairly say that a guy named Gerald C. McGuire approached Smedley Butler over 1933 and 1934 and sent him postcards from fascist Europe and tried to enlist him in some kind of plot. Beyond that, I can say that this is from my research. It is very credible that McGuire's boss would have been involved. His boss was a guy named Grayson M.P. Murphy, who was, again, a prominent financier on Wall Street in the early 1930s. The reason why I think that it's very probable that Murphy was considering something like this is because he had spent an entire, just in the same way that Butler had spent his career overthrowing democracies overseas, which is the reason why he would have been approached. Murphy had done the same. Murphy had been in military intelligence. He had joined, he had gone to West Point during the Spanish-American War. He went overseas and he was an agent in the conspiracy to basically sever uh, Panama from Colombia for purposes of building the Panama Canal. He was in the Philippines. He was in all these different places. And then he was very closely tied to J.P. Morgan. He had been in charge of basically overseeing a loan backed by J.P. Morgan that the U.S. government used to control the Dominican Republic. Again, these are like very complicated things, but I describe them in the book, but they all take a little more time than we have here to describe. The other thing was that Murphy spent, he was in Europe during the First World War running the Red Cross. And after that, he kind of barnstormed around Europe setting up his own private intelligence network with his friend, a guy named Wild Bill Donovan, who ends up running the OSS, which is the forerunner to the CIA. And the committee that Butler testified in front of, it was headed by a Democrat named John McCormack, who later becomes Speaker of the House. The second member is a guy named Samuel Dickstein, who's a Democrat from New York. And they basically say we were able to verify all the pertinent statements that Smedley Butler made. It's very clear that McGuire was perjuring himself, but he ended up sort of like, despite himself, confirming all these things that Butler said. And they also say that like the only reason they didn't call Murphy to testify in front of the committee was that like, it's a weird explanation, but it was basically like, we didn't want to give him a chance to like defend himself because like we already had him dead to rights. Beyond that, so Butler, in his testimony, Butler alleges that McGuire told him 
that a group of even more powerful businessmen were going to emerge in a couple of weeks after this meeting between Maguire and Butler in the late summer of 1934. And Maguire describes them as being the villagers in the opera, like sort of they were going to be like the supernumeraries that were going to be in the background running things sort of backstage. And that is a group that includes the big names. So it was a group called the Liberty League. And the Liberty League was a real thing that did exist. And it was founded by the DuPonts of DuPont, Alfred P. Sloan of General Motors, Ken Erickson, Phillips Oil, Sun Oil, like all of these like big name industrialists. And by the way, Grayson M.P. Murphy, McGuire's boss, was the treasurer of the Liberty League. What we don't know is how far the planning had gotten, whether the extent to which these guys like the DuPonts, you know, like Sloan, the extent to which they were aware of what was happening. And the reason why we don't know is because the investigation was cut short. It was initially mocked in the press. Um, The New York Times was mocking Butler. Time Magazine was mocking Butler. And it seems that maybe they were afraid to bring the big shots in, as Butler uh, later referred to them. So we don't have all these people dead to rights because we don't have evidence of what they knew and when they knew it. It's probable that if they had known about it, that they might have gone along with it. But we just can't say with any degree of certainty. Yeah, you think something that comes up repeatedly in your book, both with how we've forgotten this history of U.S. imperialism in the late 19th century and early 20th century, as well as this plot at the time, the book, I think, touches on a lot of things people would rather not look too much into or think about too much. And especially in terms of the foreign policy aspects of it, your book reminds me a lot of Vincent Bevins's The Jakarta Method, which covered a different time period, but in terms of U.S. abetting of, of, of these authoritarian right-wing regimes around the world. What is it you think that is making these topics so topical? in our current day? Oh, well, I mean, I think that the period of imperial wars that Butler was involved in represent nothing so much as the wars that the United States has been involved in over the last 20 years. And that's not really a surprise because one of the things that I think you find when you look back through American history at all of American history, not just sort of the highlights, is that most of the wars that the United States has been involved in really since the founding are these sort of dirty war, forever war type of things done for less attractive motives of sort of extraction and land grabbing and patting the bottom lines of capitalists than the wars that we are the ones that we like to talk about. I mean, generally, when we think about wars and we think about like great American heroism, we think about World War II and the Civil War, which especially in the case of World War II, that's the one, especially in Europe, where it's easiest to make the case that like we were the good guys and the other guys, the Nazis, were the bad guys because the Nazis were like they were the worst people ever. But over the last 20 years, I mean, you know, going back to 9-11 and somewhat before, but especially Iraq and Afghanistan and the low-level involvement that the United States has had, although we've at a low level, we have killed a lot of people in Syria, in Libya, in Somalia, the list goes on. Those engagements actually have a lot more in common with Butler and the Marines. These wars that were People were sometimes paying attention to them, sometimes they weren't. And to a certain extent, Butler was sort of like, and the Marines were kind of the drones of their day. They were kind of shock troops that answered directly to the president that the federal government could control because they were part of the Navy and as opposed to the Army. And so they would just sort of, after the war of colonization in the Philippines, where the U.S. annexed the Philippines basically from 1899 until the 19-teens, and then we continued, the Philippines remained a colony of the United States until World War II. That was a very costly and horrific war that Americans sort of, it kind of turned off the American public from that kind of adventurism. But the government and businesses still wanted us to send troops in places to control them, to make sure that our businesses and our people had their way. And so they would send the Marines. I think that's part of what is attracting a new generation of attention to this period, because it resembles a lot. And there are many other examples that we could talk about, but it resembles a lot of the things that America has been doing over the last 20, 30 years. Well, my final question to you is that in your deep research of this guy, Was he emphatic in his speeches to pacifists or anti-war groups or in any of his subsequent writings about what the specific 
moment was that he started reevaluating his entire worldview, obviously trying to be solicited into partaking in what amounts to a fascistic coup in America could be something that does it. But was there anything else he talked about, about reevaluating and sort of personally confronting what he had been a part of as the tip of the spear in terms of all this anti-democratic action? around the world at the behest of... Exactly. At the behest of the banks and these corporations, and also, you know, for the benefit of... And the U.S. government. Let's not let them off the hook, of course. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. For a bunch of other people's bottom lines. That's the big thing. And that was one of the things that I was on the lookout for. That's what set me on this path, was like, I was trying to figure out how did this guy who reinstituted slavery and dissolved the Haitian parliament at gunpoint, how did he then become this anti-war activist? And I can't say that like I found like a single easy answer to that question, but I think that what it is is that Butler, when he joined the Marines in 1898, he was 16 years old. He was doing so because of principle. He believed that he was going to, in his words, shoulder a rifle and free little Cuba from the Spanish Empire. He thought he was he was fighting in like an anti-imperialist war. And he thought he was fighting on the part of democracy and also in revenge for the destruction of the USS Maine, which was, you know, to a certain extent, like the 9-11 of that generation. And like a lot of Americans, he came into that with a lot of blindness. He was blind to white supremacy. He was blind to white privilege. And among other things, like he was blind to the idea that like, why would Cubans who had been fighting a war of independence against Spain for 30 years at that point, why would they need the help of a 16 year old from like the main line of Philadelphia, like who had never like held a gun before? Why would they need him? That's the sort of thing that he hadn't really considered. And then he kind of lost the plot a lot over the course of his career as he just tried to find himself as a man and accelerate his career in the Marine Corps. Over the course of these decades, I found in his letters growing sort of disillusionment, growing questioning of, of what he was doing, especially in Nicaragua, where he was overthrowing the government of Nicaragua in the early 19-teens. At no point did that disillusionment, moral injury, the PTSD that he was very clearly going through, at no point did those actually stop him from doing anything, except maybe at the end with he has two tours in China. The second tour is in the 1920s during the outset of the Chinese Civil War between the communists and the nationalists. And he kind of keeps his troops out of battle. That's maybe the one time that you sort of see him like, let's maybe like try to kill fewer people or let's try to make things less bad than they were when we got here. But it's really in the 1930s. And I think to a certain extent, it's the business plot. It's seeing that some of the same people on whose behalf he was overthrowing democracies abroad, were willing to overthrow a democracy at home. And all of those things sort of came together and they kind of came to the head in the cauldron of the Great Depression with the rise of fascism in Europe and the brewing of World War II, which was what he spent the last 10 years of his life essentially trying to prevent. And he died 18 months before Pearl Harbor, so he didn't live to see it. I think that was what finally made him do his sort of final turn and speak out. But by that point, he had done so much in his life to make sure that militarism and gangster capitalism were ascendant, that it was very hard for him as one person to do anything to stop it. And that, to my mind, is, is the great tragedy of Butler's life. This is a question with a two-word answer from you. Who plays Smedley Butler in the Smedley Butler movie? <laughs> I'm going to go with Harry Shear. What would you say? That's good. Oh, man. What were you going to say? An unorthodox choice here from Swin. Yeah. Will, do you have a thought? Gosh, I don't know. Who do you think? I think it should be somebody with comic chops, because he's a funny guy. Pete Davidson. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not that many comic chops. That would be an interesting take. So I hate to say it. The person who looks the most like him is Sean Penn. This would be the subject of another podcast, but Sean Penn will never work on a project that I'm attached to, and I would not want Sean Penn to work on a project that I'm attached to. There's a little bit of bad blood between us. What is the bad blood over? Sorry, you can't leave that open. What is the bad blood there? 80. We had different opinions of what he considers his heroism and his good works in Haiti after the Haiti earthquake. I go after him in my first book, The Big Truck That Went By. Very interesting. Well, we always like to get a little Hollywood intrigue on the podcast. It is absolutely a fascinating story. It's all down in your book, Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. Out this week, Jonathan M. Katz. He's on Twitter at Katz on Earth. That's K-A-T-Z. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you.
And now we take you to our beloved weekly recurring segment, Fresh Hell, in which we get into something batshit that is going on in your universe today, even if you don't believe it's actually happening, because it seems too dumb to be actually happening. Fresh Hell. So, Will, is Biden going to impose martial law? And if so, when should I be expecting it? Sure. So here on Fever Dreams, we consider one of our core competencies explaining to you like a sort of phrase or what have you that a week later, perhaps a stranger, perhaps a member of your family will mention is something they fervently believe in. So now (laughs) this is a big one here. It's a new concrete wall going up outside the White House. So here's the story here. So the wall of the White House, I believe, facing Lafayette Park, there has been some construction going on on the lawn and these barriers have been going in, not on the part where the public would interact, the kind of stuff they put up to stop jumpers, but kind of some heavy duty type looking walls on the lawn itself, a little closer to the White House. So there's always construction going on at the White House. There's always stuff happening. But this one has, for some reason, really resonated with the people of the right and particularly a lot of right wing conspiracy theorists. The implication being basically the storyline has gone like this. What's going up at the White House? Why are they putting up these blast barriers? Which I think is a little generous to what these barriers are. What's this wall about? The second step being Biden is about to impose martial law or some unconscionable new law or executive order that will so outrage the American people that they will want to storm the barricades. And so we need to harden the White House. I can't emphasize hard enough that if you look at photos or if you go in in person and look at this concrete slab, it is not impressive or intimidating at all. Right. It is not like covered in barbed wire. It doesn't even really look like what they put up outside the Capitol after the riot. So, but nevertheless, this has really been picked up by such blogs that I frequent with names like the Conservative Treehouse. And people like Adam Baldwin, actor, you may remember from Firefly. Future Republican nominee. I believe Carl Higby was a Republican nominee. I believe... Carl Higby was a former Trump official. Yeah, so Trump official Carl Higby, picked up by a lot of people. Sebastian Gorka has got into implying various things about this wall, that this is some kind of, I don't even know what law Biden could implement, really. I guess probably a vaccine-related thing that would really outrage people this much. But basically, so I did a little on-the-ground reporting here, as have some other reporters. So I emailed the White House, and I said, what's up with the wall? And they said, they kind of treated me like a kook, which might be fair. I was like, I got to get to the bottom. What's going on with the wall? And it's like, don't worry about the wall, dude. It doesn't affect anything. And so they said, yes, they're doing some routine construction near a fountain. And so they put up the wall for that purpose. But of course, this kind of thing doesn't exactly disprove the conspiracy theory, because if they were about to impose martial law and Biden's German shepherds going to take on protesters on the lawn, that's exactly what they would say. So if you hear people talking about the wall, the mysterious wall, what's going on, that is it. Okay, so when you were interacting with the Biden White House, on this hot piece of reporting, they did realize that you cover conspiracy theory and you were asking about something related to something you were covering. Did they actually think like you were an envoy of, I don't know, Newsmax TV and were actually trying to figure out if this was like the dawn of Biden imposed martial law in America? (laughs) It seemed as though it's come up enough that they have a prepared (laughs) statement on it, that it's like, it's not the wall. Like, I had to call the Pentagon once about this group of QAnon guys who claim they work for the Pentagon hunting pedophiles. And I called the Pentagon and I was like, hey, is there a Pentagon pedophile task force? And the guy just sighed and he said, no, let me get you the statement. So (laughs) the statement. I've sent this to like 80 people already today. I think the larger thing that this points to, besides just like the, the crazy conspiracy things that anything can get ginned up right now in the media environment, is sort of washing as canvas for conspiracy theories. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but there are people who walk around Washington, these conspiracy theorists, who are very well paid by their fans, who just walk around Washington filming things that they think are odd, often aren't odd, but are sort of like, hmm, lights out at the Department of Labor. This sounds like the coup is on or something. And it's like, well, guys, it's Martin Luther King Day or something. It's very banal stuff. Like the biggest one is like they'll show flooding in Washington because there's a big rain and they'll say, ah, I see the pedophile tunnels are being flooded out by Trump has gained control of the weather machine. But this is just such a classic example. And actually, I think this one might have emerged from initially from one of these characters who just sees something and goes pretty interesting. I guess getting to the crux of it, it's sort of like they take this worldview that they develop online and on Telegram and on Gab and what have you. And they take it into the real world and sort of is like playing Pokemon Go, right? They're kind of imposing this this universe that they bring from the internet onto the real world. Right. They're just staring at fish guts, basically, and trying to predict the future. And they're somehow making it even dumber than if they literally did that. I mean, this is just a nondescript piece of concrete, basically. 
And they are trying to imagine that that means something in terms of, okay, someone somewhere is politically signaling that suddenly the Marines are going to be marching down the streets of Wisconsin to keep Joe Biden in power or whatever is going on in their brain. When really, if you're walking around that part of Northwest Washington, D.C., you will see a good number of men and women with guns parading around the White House and the area around it. Doesn't that look a little bit more like it to you that that could be a threatening image rather than just a piece of concrete? <laughs> you would think so, but I think a lot of the people who have get so wrapped up in this stuff have major media platforms. They rile up a lot of people about it. And that's why we call the segment Fresh Hell. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.